People are the same. It doesn't matter how much wealth you've had, how great your intellect is, how much social sway you have with the people of this world. If you don't have Jesus as your Savior, the people on this particular day will be nothing more than bird food. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in Revelation chapter 19, a chapter with much taking place in it. Here we see the end of the judgment Scott has poured out on the earth, followed by a celebration called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, in which all of heaven rejoices over God's disposition of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and eventually Satan himself. It is this victory that we'll be looking at today in a message entitled, The Collapse at Armageddon. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he recaps what we've seen in this chapter so far before plowing new ground. The 19th chapter is a textual bridge between the end of the Great Tribulation and the return of Jesus to the earth with his armies. Notice the first three words in chapter 19, after these things. We've seen that all the way through the Revelation, metatata, after these things. After what things? After the events of chapters 17 and 18, with the fall of economic Babylon, with the final seven bold judgments that come upon the earth, we've seen that every time God says after these things, it is a structural marker to let you know that there's a change in what is going to unfold that is going to take place. So in conjunction with the conclusion of the seven bowls, after these things, John hears something like a loud voice. A phono megale. We reverse the words megale phono and we get our word megaphone. He hears a loud, loud voice. And what was that loud, electrifying voice? We studied it in the first six verses. It was the song of the saved. God's people in heaven just praising God with all their might, like a mighty rushing waterfall, the noises compared to because they know finally Jesus is going to return and Jesus is going to rule. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb will begin to take place. Now, sometimes we'll see pictures of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it looks kind of dreamy and cloudy, and, but it doesn't take place in heaven. We studied in the next paragraph that followed, it takes place upon the earth. Jesus will sit down and we with Him we're going to have a feast. And of course, Christ's return from heaven is compared to the marriage of a first century Jewish three-stage process. The first stage was the legal consummation. When a, a groom would go to the prospective father of the bride, and they would settle on a purchase, a price, an arrangement. It really demonstrated that he was responsible, among other things, that he could leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. Just like the father with the son agreed upon, as the book of Hebrews tells us, a purchase price for Christ's bride, the church. The second stage is when the groom comes months later to claim his bride. He leaves, he goes and prepares a place for his bride, but then he comes back. And Jesus uses that Jewish imagery in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the ten virgins. And then the third stage is the marriage supper. And it's not like a reception in our day that's two or three hours long. It's a whole week long. 
There's an illustration of it with the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. Well, we are right now in phase one. Christ, with His own blood, has purchased His bride, and He is gathering the bride together. Every day there are people across the world who are coming to Christ. And one of these days, the last believer who are members of the church will be saved, and the Father will say, Son, go get your bride. And that will kick in phase two. That will be the rapture of the church. And then in phase three, the marriage supper of the Lamb will happen at Christ's second coming. And so John can say here in verse 9, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then if you remember in verses 11 through 16, where we were last time, we studied Jesus coming back in great power. I'm just going to read it. Let me read it to you. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John reminds us that monogrammed on the robe of Christ, draped over his thigh, are the words King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's significant because those are the same two titles that Moses gives to God the Father in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses wrote, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. But he is also given not just the title um, God of gods, that is Adonim, Lord of lords. He is also called King of kings, Malek Hamalekim, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. Jesus is the visual manifestation of the Father. So when you see Jesus, you see the Father. He who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And what an encouragement this would be to the first century readers. Because the Caesars love to call themselves Lord. They love to call themselves the King of Kings. But all of the presidents and all the prime ministers and all the leaders of this world will become Christ's footstool. In one of these days, Jesus is going to say, mount up. We will have been raptured. We'll be in heaven. And he'll say, mount up. Come with me. In puny little loss. we will be on a stallion led by the chief of the armies of God, Jesus himself, and we will come back to the earth. Now, that's where we're at. That's the backdrop. You ready? <laughs> you say, I'm ready. All right. Three simple truths concerning the coming collapse at Armageddon. First, Satan's forces are doomed at Armageddon. I want you to see that this is a scene of doom and gloom for Satan's collapsing kingdom as it's predicted by God on at least two different levels. First, the calling of the fowls, the calling of the fowls. Notice what the apostle John observes. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. So as Jesus descends from heaven on his white stallion, and we are following him on white horses, 
he is compared, the Bible says, to this angel that is shining like the sun. Now think about this. Picture this for a moment. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul met Christ on the Damascus Road, and the Bible says his conversion took place at high noon, when the sun's the highest and brightest in the Middle Eastern sky. And it is bright in that part of the world, very bright and very hot. And if you take a candle and you light it in the middle of the day, it just seems to put out no light at all. It just seems almost dull. Yet when Paul meets Christ on the road to Damascus, the Bible says that Jesus appeared to him to be brighter than the noonday sun. So here's Christ coming back with his armies, and we defined what those armies were and who they represented. And here's this angel that the Bible says he um, is standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds in mid-heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. So it's not that this angel is bright, but the backdrop behind him makes him bright. You go to a jewelry store, and the jeweler brings out a diamond, and he puts it on a beautiful black cloth to let us see the beauty and the magnificence of the diamond. Well, the backdrop here are birds, hundreds and millions of birds filling the skies. Now, some of you have been to Israel, and you will know that Israel is the apple of God's eye. He calls it the center of the world. It's at the point where three continents converge, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And on one of our fall trips, we were there because scientists tell us, and birdiologists or whatever their name is, what are they called? I forgot. Not birdiologists. You know what they are. Anyway, these birdiologists tell us that every year some 500 million birds fly over Israel. And there we were. We were down in the desert near the Dead Sea. And we looked up at the sky, and there were just millions of birds. They were making their annual migration to Africa beginning there in the fall of the the year. And here's this angel, and he cries out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven. And by the way, I don't think it's by accident that the fall festivals concerning the church, Christ's Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost, so forth, that those were all fulfilled in the spring of the year. And the events for the second coming, when the birds fly, <laughs> will be fulfilled in the fall of the year. Not the rapture, but the second coming. And so this angel shouts, come, assemble for the great supper of God. Now think about this. Here's one of God's commanding angels. These angels are not fat little babies with halos. These angels are not effeminate type men as they're so often pictured. This is a determined warrior. And with the command of God behind him with a loud voice, he calls the fowls of the air. And if you remember the sermon that Christ gave there on the Mount of Olives, he spoke of all these vultures that will be gathered for this very battle that we're studying this morning. This is the great supper that takes place at the end of the campaign of Armageddon. Now, we'll see in just a moment that the armies of the world are at this point fighting against one person, God's Messiah. That can only mean that they're not coming to eat him, they're coming to eat them. And the world would be wise to fall on their face and to declare Jesus is Lord. But it's too late at this point. 
The past for people, be, the time for people being saved is past. Come, assemble for the great supper of the Lord. Armies, as we're going to see in just a moment, are going to be representing all of the nations of the world. They're going to come across the planet to Israel, and they're going to be eaten when they are destroyed by birds. This is going to redefine international cuisine in the truest sense. God's angel is inviting the birds of the air to eat the flesh of these men. It's all over. You can come against Jesus, but it's too late. Now, they've been fighting against Israel, and we'll study this a little bit more, but many of the details of that battle are filled in through the Old Testament prophets, especially the prophet Zechariah, and some of you right now are in an ABF where you're studying the prophet Zechariah. But when this day comes, while it will be a day of great joy for the church and all the Old Testament saints who will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, there'll be another supper, not the marriage supper of the Lamb, but what's called here the great supper of God, and it will be a time of great sorrow. By the way, the first supper that God instituted, we call it the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. It's not called communion. It's not called the Eucharist. In the Bible, it's called the Lord's Table. Now, I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong to call it by those names, but what you typically discover, that when someone calls it communion or the Eucharist, they've infused more into that ordinance than God actually says about it in Scripture. And millions of people across the world today will, in many churches, celebrate the Lord's Table. We do at least once a month. But millions and millions of unbelievers We'll celebrate it as lost people, really with nothing to celebrate. It's just a religious act. But if you're here today and you know Jesus and you celebrate the Lord's table because you understand the true meaning behind those symbols, you'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But if you are lost and if these events happen soon and the church is taken out and you're here for the great tribulation, you may be part of this bird's supper. Your flesh will be consumed, or at least the people who are representing you at this battle. Now look further. Beyond the calling of the fowls, verse 18 teaches the consuming of the flesh. These birds are called to come and assemble. Why? So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Now, this battle is going to result in an unparalleled slaughter where there are millions of dead people filling with their blood the grasses across Israel. If you are with us in our study of Revelation chapter 14, where we are first introduced to the campaign of Armageddon, the Bible tells us that the blood will be up to the horse's bridle. Now, if you've ever seen a horse gallop through a muddy field, the mud is up to the horse's bridle. He's just covered in mud. Take mud and replace it with blood. Take some 200 million soldiers who are dead, and their blood is all over the grass of Israel, and you have blood up to the horse's bridle splattered all over those great animals. And by the way, it appears by the end of the tribulation, and again, people debate how long the uh, 
bowl judgments take place, but they can't last that long or nobody would have lived because of the nature of them, and we studied each of them. Maybe they do take place in a matter of weeks at the end, but we know that in the fourth bowl judgment, men are scorched by the sun, and it might be through that scorching, there's what we call EMPs, electromagnetic pulses, And through those EMPs, the conventional warfare that we know today will be lost, and people will literally be there on horses at this point. In either case, this is a great supper, and notice the birds will eat the flesh of kings and of commanders, mighty men, those who sit on the horses, all men, free, slaves, small, and great. So here are all these big shots, kings, and commanders, the greatest of men, strong and confident men, and these small shots, <laughs> slaves, and nobodies in this world, but they all taste the same to the birds. And these people who have come and assembled first to go against Israel, and now to go against the Jew of all Jews, God's Messiah, they are eaten. The flesh of all men both free men and slaves, small and great. You say, slaves? Yes, slaves. God writes about the future before it happens. The United Nation says there's somewhere between 21 million and 48 million people in the world today who are in slavery. And I'm not talking about human sex trafficking. We're talking about what's commonly called collateral debt bondage. Countries like India, they're number one. China is number two. Pakistan, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Russia, Thailand, DR Congo, Myanmar, Bangladesh, those are the top nations. And in many of those nations, if you are in debt to someone and you cannot pay the debt, then you become that person's slave. And if you don't pay the debt off in your lifetime, then your kin that follows you continues in that form of slavery. God who knows all things knows that this evil will continue right to the end, and so He includes both the free and the slaves. Then He dictates, notice, the small and the great, meaning from every social category in life, from the untouchables caste in India to the great royal families of the world. There's something about death that is the great equalizer. There's no big shots or small shots when people die. People are the same. It doesn't matter how much wealth you've had, how great your intellect is, how much social sway you have with the people of this world. If you don't have Jesus as your Savior, the people on this particular day will be nothing more than bird food. Now, Satan's forces are doomed at Armageddon. That's the first thing. I want you to notice now from verse 19 how Satan's forces are drawn to Armageddon. I want us to see how they are drawn to Armageddon. The Bible teaches that all the armies of the world, many today whom are enemies of the Lord Jesus, they will join forces in the ultimate act of anti-Semitism, and they will go against not just Israel, but the line of the tribe of Judah. Notice first how Satan gathers his forces. We are told now in verse 19, and I saw the beast. Remember, that's one of the names for the Antichrist. John gave us the name Antichrist in his first epistle, but the most common name for this man, this world leader, there's some 30 titles he's given in the Bible, is the beast. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war. 
Now, some find it difficult how all these nations could be so foolish to try to keep Jesus with his armies coming from heaven in this pitch battle somehow off the earth. But remember, they acknowledge this is Jesus who's coming. How do I know that? Because all the way back in Revelation 6 and verse 16, when the sealed judgments begin, they affirm that this was the wrath of the Lamb. And when you hate Jesus, you hate Jesus' people, the Jewish people. That's why I say any anti-Semite who claims to be a Christian is deceived. And the movement of anti-Semitism is sweeping the college campuses in America through the BDS movement. Boycott, divest, and sanction Israel. We have people in our Congress who are anti-Semites who hate the Jewish people. And so somehow they are going in their minds to destroy not only Israel, but Israel's king. In addition, you need to understand that not only are they blinded by their anti-Semitism, the Bible teaches that they are blinded by demonic forces. Hold your finger here and turn back a few pages. Go, if you will, to Revelation chapter 16 for just a moment. Revelation chapter 16. If you remember, we studied some of these demonic forces that are coming. Let me read to you verse 13. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, he was identified for us as Satan, out of the mouth of Satan, the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, that's his antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, John elaborates further. Look at verse 14. For these frogs, they are spirits of demons, performing signs, that is miracles, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Now, please notice how verse 14 ends by referring to this time as the great day of God Almighty. For this coming day will no longer be the great day of man, It will no longer be the great day of Antichrist. It will no longer be the great day of the false prophet. This day will be the great day of God Almighty. And this unholy trinity that mimics the holy trinity, where Satan takes the place of God the Father, where the Antichrist takes the place of God the Son, where the false prophet who points men to the Antichrist takes the place of the Holy Spirit, this unholy trinity will send out these demonic, frog-like spirits to deceive the people of this world. It's what Paul reminded us of. You might want to put next to this verse, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. Let me read it to you. There we're told, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. Now, at times… God gives Satan permission to deceive. And this is one such example where the kings of the whole world will march against Israel through the deception of this unholy trinity. Satan is going to convince the leaders of the world that they actually have a shot at this. It's incredible when you think about it. He's going to inspire them to make this assault not only against Israel, but whom they are no doubt reading of in the revelation of God's Son that will come back. And we're told in verse 16 here, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Now, here's a picture of Har-Mageddon. Har is the Hebrew word for mountain or hill, and it relates to what we call the Mount of Megiddo. Some of you have been here with me. It's an elevated... um, 
hill of sorts, a real small mountain, I suppose you could say, and it overlooks what we typically refer to as the Valley of Jezreel. It's a very important valley that it overlooks because some of Israel's greatest battles, some of history's greatest battles happened right here. If you remember, according to the book of Judges, chapter 4, Barak, as he heard the uh, word of prophecy from Deborah, he fought Sisera here near the waters of Megiddo, the Bible says. It was here in the book of Judges that Gideon, that great man of God, took his place against the Midianite forces. It was here at Megiddo that King Josiah, that godly king in Israel's history, was conquered by Pharaoh Necho, and all of Israel wept. It's a renowned Old Testament battlefield in a region that spans some 200 miles. Titus, the Roman general, fought here, as did Pompey and Richard the Lionhearted. And, and Napoleon called this very great valley the world's greatest natural battlefield. So God is allowing these three demonic spirits as a judgment to deceive the kings of the world. It reminds me of what God allowed back in 1 Kings chapter 22. Let me read to you what Micaiah said to that wicked, evil king called Ahab. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward, a demonic spirit, and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Now, King Ahab, if you remember, found it incredibly difficult to believe how one prophet could be right and 400 could be wrong. And I suppose it's not all that different today, is it? And Micaiah explained that the message of the 400 prophets was a result of a fallen angel of a deceitful spirit who was leading the king in the wrong direction. But since Ahab wanted to be deceived by his rebellious spirit, God allowed him to be deceived. Indeed, the devil is God's devil. He has no authority but that authority which God gives him. And that's precisely, go back to Revelation 19, that's precisely what is happening here in the 19th chapter, when God allows the kings of the whole world to be deceived because they have rejected the truth. They're like putty in the hand of Satan. The Bible tells us that God will bring forth a deluding influence such that those who don't believe in Jesus Christ will reach a point where they won't even be able to discern truth. And that's exactly what will happen to the kings of the world as Jesus Christ prepares for his second coming. To listen again to today's message, The Collapse at Armageddon, use the Search the Scriptures app for mobile devices or navigate your computer to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV56. Many of the places we have been studying in the Revelation will be featured in our 2021 Tour of Israel. 
Assuming a successful rollout of the COVID vaccine, we are hoping to host two trips to the Holy Land, one at the end of September and the other at the beginning of October. If you'd like more information as it becomes available, visit searchthescriptures.org Israel. The Search the Scriptures trip to Israel is paid for exclusively by those participating in the trip. Tomorrow, the conclusion of the collapse at Armageddon. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. <laughs>